things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So in the New Testament, making reference back to Isaiah in the Old Testament, the comments that Isaiah made about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that when he came, there would be those that would not believe the report because their eyes had been blinded and their heart had been hardened and uh, so that they would not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted so that the Lord should heal them. And when it says they're blinded and hardened, that's not something they did to themselves. That's something that was done to them. And uh, when you consider the fact that uh, the majority of the Jewish or the Hebrew people missed the coming of Jesus Christ, when we look tonight as we look at some of the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, it's really amazing that they missed him because he fulfilled all of the uh, uh, messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, yet the Hebrew people missed, for the most part, uh, the Messiah. But the Bible says it was because blindness had happened to them. Amen. In uh, September 27th, uh, Isaiah chapter number 53, I want to read through this portion of Scripture in your hearing, and then we're going to talk about it. Um, Before we read, I want to make some uh, uh, comments about the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is one of the uh, most complete and powerful of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And um, the message of Isaiah could be summed up. I heard someone say one time, there's a two parts to the message of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. And Old Testament prophets have a tendency to speak and cry out against sin in people's lives. And Isaiah was no different. And he fit this paradigm completely of crying out against the idolatry and the sin of the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. But the one thing that's unique about Isaiah is not only is the book of Isaiah full of his warnings and his lamentations against the sin and the whoremongering of God's people against the one true God toward idolatry. On the flip side, there was a message of hope. That if you stop sinning, if you stop worshiping and serving other gods, that there is a promise of a better day that's coming. And so Isaiah is a book that's not only full of uh, warnings and commendations against sin, but it's a book that's also full of promise. It's a book that has uh, tremendous uh, promises that are given, many times quoted by people. I know you've heard before, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. This is something that came even from our Bible reading in the book of Isaiah. And so this does not seem like the term of a, uh, an Old Testament prophet that's crying out against sin. But uh, he's got a twofold message on the front of his chest on his T-shirt. It says, stop sinning. But on the back it says, and God will bless you. And so the message of Isaiah is full of uh, these concerns for people's lifestyle and righteousness, but also a declaration of uh, the hope that God will bless you. And toward the latter part of Isaiah, as well as sprinkled throughout, um, it tells of God's forgiveness and prophecies of blessings and provisions. Another thing about Isaiah that's really awesome is there is probably no book in the Bible besides perhaps Psalms that is so full of prophecies about a coming Redeemer, a coming Messiah that God was going to send. We call these prophecies, you've heard this term before, Hopefully you know what it means. After tonight, you will know. Have you ever heard the term messianic before? Messianic. Messianic prophecies. All that means is prophecies of 
the Messiah or the coming Messiah. And, of course, we know who the Messiah was, the Redeemer, the Savior, the one that was going to save the people from their sins, was Jesus Christ. So all the prophecies in the Old Testament that prophesy about a coming Redeemer are called Messianic prophecies, prophecies of the coming Messiah, who we know was revealed as Jesus Christ. And uh, we see in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, one of the first prophecies of the coming in Isaiah of the coming Messiah, where he was referred to as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So right from the outset, Isaiah lets it be known that this coming Redeemer is not just going to be a teacher or a man or a military commander, but he is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it gives us context about this coming Redeemer or Messiah who was prophesied, that he would actually be God, made visible in the flesh. And then in Isaiah, a few two chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, uh, it reveals to us uh, this passage of Scripture, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so it tells about this coming Messiah and that, uh, the, it, that the Messiah would come as a child, that he would be born as a child. So I'm not exactly sure how this prophecy all worked, but somewhere in the context of Isaiah's writings about, about Israel's plight and condition, there would be a prophetic urge that would come up upon him, and he would begin to write about things that he had no clue what he was writing. Now, we have perfect understanding of what he was saying because we're blessed with uh, 2020 hindsight. We saw the life of Jesus, and we can look back at the writings of Isaiah and say that's what he was talking about. But Isaiah's writing about something that's to come, and he has no clue. I imagine he got finished with the first draft, and he's like, God, I hope you know what you were doing. I hope I wasn't having a, some kind of a, a daydream or that uh, I had eaten something wrong, and it set me into some kind of a psychedelic pathway here because i don't understand what this all means i doubt if isaiah understood what he was writing but he wrote the bible says all scripture is god breathed that it that means it's inspired by the holy spirit and it has the personality and the writing nuances of the author authors but the words themselves and the, the message itself comes from god directly and so there is no way no way under the sun that a man not led by God's Spirit, not with some divine spark, could write about things that were going to happen hundreds of years in the future and be so exact and perfect in the description and declaration. In fact, the prophecies, the, as we defined them before, the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus and re revealed in their fulfillment in the book of Matthew especially and even in the other Gospels is one of the strongest proofs that the Bible is what it claims to be. That is the Word of God. It's hard to argue with 100% accuracy on prophecy. So if the Bible is true and uh, uh, it claims to be the Word of God, it's either all the Word of God or it's all foolishness. And we believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. And one of our strongest proofs is the fact that all of these Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. So... Um, Isaiah chapter number 53, verse 1. It's from September 27. I want to read together. I want you to follow along in your Bible this important.
passage of Scripture. In fact, this is a passage of Scripture. The a church that I grew up in, in Iowa, as a little boy, I remember the entire church memorized this chapter uh, because of its uh, relevance um, to the message of Jesus Christ and the oneness of God. Uh, 53 and 1 says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Verse 2, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced. Everybody say pierced. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. In the King James Version, it says, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. By his stripes we were healed. Verse number 6, all us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, who's him, this servant that he's talking about, the sins of us all. This Messiah that was coming, this servant that was coming, would have the sins of everyone laid on him. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, in other words, he would have no children, and that his life was cut short in midstream, that he would be a young person. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone but was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, in a borrowed grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. So God wasn't surprised. It was his plan. And cause him grief when his life is made an offering for sin. Any question about whether or not this is talking about Jesus? His life was made as an offering for sin. Some people say, well, that's Isaiah talking about himself. That's foolishness. That's totally not getting the point. His life uh, was made an offering for sin. He will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Verse 11, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. Because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. Many will be counted righteous because of the experience of this servant. Uh, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ uh, in Isaiah chapter 53 revealed some powerful things uh, uh, that we're going to be in the ministry of Jesus, and we see them uh, fulfilled. Amen. It's uh, very curious that uh, the Jews, as I mentioned, missed their Messiah because Romans chapter eleven twenty-five says, Blindness in part is happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles become. And so it was intentional that all the Jews did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah because their rejection of Jesus opened the door to the Gentile nations to be brought into the kingdom of God. But that does not mean that God's promises to the Jewish people are null and void because when God makes a promise, He always fulfills His promise. And their mistake is our miracle. Amen. Now the prophecies about... uh, The coming of Jesus Christ, the predictions in the Old Testament, of course, his birthplace was predicted. In fact, um, there's at least 29 Old Testament prophecies that relate to the passion of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. 29, and all of them, the death, burial, and suffering, and the whipping, and all of this, all of those prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled in 24 hours. And I mean, that's just unbelievable that all of those would be fulfilled and all of them would be chronicled in the various Gospels. And still, the Hebrew people would not recognize that all of these prophecies were being fulfilled uh, through Jesus Christ. For, uh, for instance, the fact that his garments would be parted and they would gamble for them. This was prophesied hundreds of years before. The fact that he would be pierced, as we read. The fact that he would be beat, even to the penny. The price of his betrayal was predicted hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ. So these fascinating uh, prophecies uh, reveal who Jesus was and who he was going to be and that the word of God is true. And as we read through Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 1 revealed, says that uh, God is revealing his powerful arm. And who is it that recognized and heard the report? And caught the message that God would reveal his powerful arm. Verse 2 says that he would start out as a child. And verse 2 also predicts that Jesus would have a plain, normal appearance. And a plain and normal bearing. Nobody would recognize him as a king or as a prince. In fact, verse 3 says he would be despised and rejected. And verse 4 says he would be a man that would experience great sorrow and grief. And it would weigh him down. I get a picture of Jesus sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden as sorrow and grief weighed him down. Verse 5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our sins. His wounds that he received was to take care of the sin problem. And that's so interesting because in the uh, very first book of the Bible, the Bible says the seed of the woman is going to put his heel on the head of the serpent, as we heard preached on Sunday, and the serpent's head will be crushed, but the heel of the man, this seed of the woman, would be bruised. And then in Isaiah, it said that the bruising of the Messiah would be to take care of our sin problem. Amen? And that's what Jesus was doing when he was defeating Satan, when he was dying on the cross, when he was bruised. He was putting an end to Satan's influence in the lives of those that would believe and accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the bruising was for our iniquities and for our sins. It's awesome when you look at the Old Testament and begin to see it all weave together. All these prophecies and fulfillment in New Testament. Matthew, uh, if you actually do a study of it, it'll blow you away. You'll have no more questions about if you ever had any questions about whether or not the Bible was true or not. Verse 6 indicates that all of our sin and rebellion would be laid on Jesus. Verse 7 said that he would be silent despite the abuse. You notice that when Jesus was led uh, for trial... He didn't seek or try to defend himself. He didn't uh, ask for a lawyer. He didn't 
speak up when they spoke falsely against him. He was silent. Verse number 8 predicted he would have no descendants and that his life would be cut short in his prime. So these people who... uh, book that came out recently about uh, uh, some code, I can't remember what it was called, about the Da Vinci, da Vinci Code that uh, uh, predicts that, or, or, or says that uh, that perhaps Jesus had offspring or had a child. And we know from this Old Testament prophecy that there's no way the Messiah could have a child. Jesus didn't have any children. No descendants and his life cut short in its prime. No physical, fleshly descendants, but many, many spiritual descendants. Verse 9, nine uh, predicted he would be buried in a borrowed tomb and that he would be a man who was free from guilt. We know Jesus was the sinless one, and he was borrowed in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. Uh, verse 10 reveals that uh, the suffering of this man is not a surprise to God. In fact, it was in God's plan because his life was to be an offering for sin, and he would have many spiritual descendants. And verse 11, the, the great uh, report is that many who were unrighteous, would be counted righteous through the suffering and death of this one who was to come hundreds of years later. Amen? And finally, uh, uh, before we leave tonight, I want to focus on the first verse just for a few seconds where the Bible says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? And then verse 2 in the King James Version just goes on and says, He, which is a personal pronoun. Who's the personal pronoun relating to? The arm that's revealed. The arm that's revealed is the servant or the Messiah that was coming. And so as you look at this, here's the principle. The principle is this passage of Scripture is indicating that Jesus is the arm of God revealed. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because it may create some confusion because in the New Testament we see many times where Jesus is referred to as at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. And this is uh, where this principle can be made clear. First question, does God have an arm? I'm going to ask you the question, does God have an arm? Jesus had an arm. God, Creator, our Heavenly Father, does not have an arm. He doesn't have legs. He doesn't have feet. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have toes. He doesn't have any appendages. Because John chapter 4, verse 24 says, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I've said this before. Let me repeat it to you. What is the difference between God and man? Man has a spirit. God is a spirit. See the difference? Say it again. Human beings have a spirit. God is a spirit. And uh, so there's the difference. God is a spirit. We have a spirit. And uh, then also... In John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him or revealed him or spoken him or made him known. 
Amen? So no man hath seen God at any time. First Timothy 1.17 says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. Everybody say invisible. Invisible. So God is invisible. In Hebrews it says Jesus was the image of the invisible God. So God is a spirit. No man has seen God at any time. He is an invisible being. So with God being a spirit and being invisible, that means that he has no physical body. He is an invisible spirit. Does everybody understand that? God the creator, the eternal God, is invisible. I said, I wish I knew what God looks like. Good luck, because he's invisible. He's a spirit. And it's hard for us sometimes as human beings to relate to that because we live in a physical world. You don't believe that? If you don't believe that physical appearance is important to human beings, just pick up a magazine, a popular magazine, and look at advertisements. And look through and see how often you see some pop belly zit face person in there that's trying to sell a product. No, it's always somebody who's beautiful and perfectly sculpted. Uh, because human beings are so into image and so into the physical body and the physical realm. But see, <clears throat> so it's hard for us as humans to understand that there's an invisible God, but the reality is God is a spirit. And the real person that you are, now, and over the next few weeks we're going to be talking about health. We're going to talk about physical health and how important it is to take care of our physical body. But at the same time, something much more important than taking care of your physical body is your spirit man. Amen? The Bible says bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable to the nth degree. I mean, that's not the way it actually says it, but that's the implication there, is that godliness or spiritual pursuits is very valuable. Physical bodily exercise is limited in its value. And so the spirit realm is the true realm. And God is a spirit and dwells in the spirit realm. So the next question people might ask is how come throughout the Old Testament, if God is an invisible spirit, why are there references to his body parts in the Old Testament? Anybody had that question before or wondered about that? In the Old Testament, you know, the Bible talks about the eye of the Lord. We hear about the finger of God. We hear about the right arm of the Lord. We hear that the earth is his what? Footstool. Footstool, a place where you put your feet. And so all this language about the finger of God and the right arm of the Lord and God's eye is on the sparrow and God's foot. Why are all, all of these references to body parts in the Old Testament when it's obvious that God doesn't have a body, he is a spirit? I'm going to give you an understanding here. This is a, a little revelation. Whenever in the Old Testament, or New Testament for that matter, there is a reference to God using body parts, it is a poetic device. Using poetic language, a poetic device called, are you ready for this? This is a big word. Called anthropomorphism. I'll take that one down, brother. It's an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. This is a term that uh, I learned in two different places. I learned this in secular school, in English class, and I also learned this in Bible school. Anthropomorphism. It is 
it is a term that means using human characteristics to describe actions or attributes or activities of deity, ascribing human characteristics to deity so we as human beings can understand. So it's understood that God doesn't have a right arm or God doesn't have a foot. But we use these terms to describe what he is doing so that we understand. You understand this in poetic language. This happens a lot. There is hyperbole or figures of speech that are used that everybody just knows. Hey, he's not being real right there. He's not talking about a big old massive finger or a huge big old eye. Anybody ever have that image of a great big eye up in heaven just looking at you and his pupil dilating, looking into the dark? He's got those, uh, he's got those big things that they use in Iraq when they fight wars at night. He's got those big night, night image goggles that he can watch. No, it talks about the eye of what's it talk? The fact that he knows everything that's going on. He has consciousness of everything that's happening. So it's better than a human eye. The human eye can only focus on one thing, but God sees all. Yeah. And so when the Bible talks about the arm of the Lord, very, very important in the Old Testament, many times it's referenced the right arm or the arm of the Lord or the hand of God or the right hand of God. It's terminology that's frequently used to refer to something very special. The right arm of the Lord or the hand or the arm of God always is referring to God's strength or his power to demonstrate. Why is that? Because whenever you get ready to do something, you're going to be using your hand or your arm. You get ready to lift something. You get ready to work on something. You get ready to demonstrate your power or your ability or your strength. You're going to use your hands or your arm, especially in an uh, archaic agrarian society, the hands and the strength of the arms was a symbol of a person's power and ability to demonstrate. And so in, in the poetic language of Scripture, whenever referred to God's arm or God's right hand or the hand of God, it's talking about God going to work, God rolling up his sleeves, God getting ready to work and demonstrate his power or manifest his glory. So this is what the Bible is referring to in the Old Testament. We know when it talks about the eye of the Lord, it's talking about God's knowledge and uh, omniscience and the fact that he knows everything that's happening and sees all that's happening. When the Bible talks about the arm of the Lord, no, God doesn't have an arm, but it's a way for us human beings to understand it's talking about God getting ready to work. God getting ready to show his power, to show out, to demonstrate what he can do, to do what needs to be done. So the concept of God's arm or hand, particularly the right hand or the right arm of God, always in Scripture is signifying God's strength or his power that he's going to demonstrate. Now, just quickly to let you understand how this principle weaves through Scripture. You remember when Joseph was in Egypt, and then his father and all his brethren joined him in Egypt. His father at this time was very old. Jacob or Israel was very old. But before his father died, Joseph wanted him to issue a blessing to his children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember that story? He said, Dad, I want you to transfer a blessing, anointing to the next generation. 
I want you to put a blessing on my boys. So Israel agreed to that. And by doing so, Ephraim and Manasseh became sort of sons of Jacob. That's why they're tribes of Israel. The tribe of Joseph's divided into two, Ephraim and Manasseh. Anybody understand that? Because of this transference that happened, Joseph said, Bypass me, I want you to go to my sons. And, uh, and, and so this is, this is how it happened. Now, when uh, Joseph brought his sons to their dad, to, to his dad, he put them in front of his father, an older man, probably eyesight. He puts the oldest was Manasseh, which is his father's right side. The younger, Ephraim, on his left side. So that when he put his, laid his hands on him to transfer the blessing, he wanted the greater blessing, the symbolism of power, authority, and strength, the ability to execute, to go on the eldest son, whose name was Manasseh. But the Bible says, I like the way that King James Version says, it says that Jacob moved his hands cunningly and crossed his hands and put his right hand on the head of uh, Ephraim and put his left hand on the head of Manasseh. And Joseph's like, hey, wait, Dad, you're doing it wrong. He's like, no, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. You see this throughout Scripture, the younger oftentimes receiving the blessing of the elder all the way back to Jacob and Esau and uh, Cain and Abel and so forth. So um, this happened here again. But the point was, There was so much symbolism to them about the significance of where that right hand laid because it symbolized power, blessing, authority, and influence. Not only that, but it's very interesting. As I was studying today, I found out, I was just blown away by how frequently in the Old Testament when it talks about the right arm or the arm, it's linked together with salvation. Salvation. Now, it may not be salvation in terms of what we think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ or the cross, but it's salvation, a term used to deliver, to set free, to take care of the enemy. Who's going to save us? And uh, uh, the right arm is used to refer to an ability to save. Psalms 44 and 3 says, For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance because thou hadst a favor unto them. So this scripture is saying, no, it wasn't their own strength. Obviously, you didn't have a bunch of people out there just fighting on It's talking about it wasn't their strength that saved them, but it was God's right arm and no God. No, it was His strength. It was God's strength. Yes. 44.3 of Psalms. 44.3 of Psalms. It says that it was God's right hand. And then uh, Psalms chapter 74 and verse 11. This is from yesterday's reading. Um, is another one that uh, talks about the arm of the Lord, I believe. Psalms 74 and 11, it says, Why do you hold back your strong right hand? Unleash your powerful fist 
and destroy them. It's talking to God. How long, O oh God, will you allow our enemies to insult you? Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Why do you hold back your strong right hand? Why don't you unleash your strong right hand? And obviously, hopefully you've got the point by now. It's not talking about a physical arm that's going to come out and knock people out. What it's saying is, God, you've got all this power and strength and authority. Why don't you unleash it on them? How long are you going to let them insult you? How long are you going to let them continue to defeat us? The right arm of God. Again, and then Isaiah chapter 59 and uh, verse number 1, also from our reading this week. That's why it just kept coming up to me. Isaiah 59 and 1, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. It says the Lord's arm is not shortened. Now, that's not talking about somebody who's got who's got little pygmy arm that they can't accomplish much. It's talking about not having enough strength to do the job, not having enough power and enough authority. It's what it's talking about. His arm is not short. You understand what I'm saying? It's not talking about like a short little arm. It's talking about having enough power and authority because everybody understood in the poetic language of the Old Testament that the arm is referring to strength and authority and the ability to execute. When you talk about God's arm, it's often referred to in salvation. The right arm of God is symbolic of his saving power and his ability to demonstrate. It's interesting that the verse that we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 1, it refers to the coming Messiah as the arm of the Lord. This servant that's going to come and take on him the sins of many is going to be the arm of the Lord. This one who we referred to earlier as Emmanuel, God with us, is going to be the arm of the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean it's that God cuts off his arm and sends it to the earth to deliver mankind? No. It means God demonstrating his power and God demonstrating his ability to reach as far as he needs to to save and to do whatever it takes to save, to deal with whatever has to be dealt with to save human beings. It says, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Everybody say revealed. Revealed means to unveil or uncover or make visible. You guys better be glad I'm not going to unveil my arm tonight. Shock you guys with my guns. I'm just kidding. But uh, the arm of the Lord, yes. Yep, that's true. That's true. You, you get deeper than I get in this stuff. It's amazing. But that's true. Benjamin means right hand and authority. That's why, let me take a little side road. It's so interesting that the city of Jerusalem, because there was not a complete conquest, there was still in place um, the Jebusites. The Jebusites in Jerusalem, which is where the Benjaminites and the tribe of Judah were supposed to live, right? The tribe of Judah lived in Jerusalem. The tribe of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem, but also the Jebusites, because before Jerusalem was called Jerusalem, it was called Jebus. And, and I found it interesting that the word Jebus means to put a foot, throat, or the neck of something. That's what Jebus actually means. The word Benjamin means right hand of authority and power. The word Judah means praise. And because 
They didn't obey God and completely dispossess the land of, of uh, promise and get all of the unrightful heirs of Jerusalem out of there. Because they let them stay in there, their authority and their worship was always under the foot of the enemy. That's what happens in our life. If we don't deal with issues that we need to deal with in our own spirit, it puts us in a position where the enemy can have a little bit of influence over our worship and how much authority we have as children of God. That was a little side lesson there. And you started it, sister. The arm of the Lord revealed. That means it's hidden. That means it's not seen or invisible. But suddenly, who hath believed, who hath heard, who hath seen the arm of the Lord revealed? What are you talking about? It says, the arm of the Lord, he shall grow up as a tender plant, like a root in the dry ground. He's not going to be extremely attractive. We're not going to, his appearance is not going to capture our attention. He'll be a man acquainted with griefs, a man of sorrows. And it goes on to describe Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the arm or the authority or the strength, your ability of God to save, revealed and made visible. The arm of the Lord made visible. God's authority and God's power made visible to human beings. And uh, as, as uh, uh, I, I describe to people who try to understand who is Jesus in relationship to God, are they two different people? Are they two different individuals? Or are they one, as my heart has so longed to believe? Are they really one? And I say, God is a God that's invisible. He exists in a different realm than what we do, in a spirit realm. And we can't see him. But he made himself known. He declared himself. He made his power demonstrated as he unveiled or revealed his authority and power. That's why Jesus was made visible. He was the image of the invisible God. He was the spirit the, that created the world that penetrated the physical realm by taking on a body and being visible to all people. But the arm of the Lord is revealed. Amen. And then when you look in the New Testament, it says of Jesus, in verse 69 of Luke 22, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. It's not saying that he's sitting on the right hand of a person who doesn't even have a body. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness to sins. And when Stephen was stoned, Acts 7.55, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. No, he didn't see a big, huge man with big... standing on top of a hand. It was this, once again, this imagery of Scripture indicating that it was the revelation of God's power and God's authority. And so Jesus was God's right arm being revealed to the world. It was God made visible, God in the flesh. Amen. Let's stand together. Praise God. Hallelujah. God bless you. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord tonight. Let's lift up our hands and thank the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God, you're great and greatly to be praised. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, just lift up your hands and praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself, Lord.
Thank you for salvation, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, what love, Lord Jesus. What great love you have for mankind, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. Amen, amen. Hallelujah, praise God. God's good. Praise God. Good to have everybody here tonight. Amen, amen. Let's have revival. Praise God. Let's not forget um, our uh, announcements. And uh, Lord bless you. Have a great rest of the week.